Turn this morning to the book of 1 Chronicles, uh, beginning in the 17th chapter, and then we'll skip down to the 22nd. May the Holy Spirit of God add his blessing to the reading of his word. And it came about when David dwelt in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. It came about the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in. In chapter 22, then David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps and more bronze than could be weighed and timbers of cedar logs beyond number, for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed blood and waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, how good it is to be in your house today. Lord, we've come out of a sense of love for you and a sense of need for you. And we acknowledge in this moment, Lord, that we are created for you. Your word says that you have built us for your glory, created us, hold us together so that you would have first place in everything in our lives. And so today, Lord, we come. We come humbly, Father, because we know that it's nothing that we deserve that we're allowed to cry out to you to have our prayers heard. We come asking for forgiveness of our sins and our failures. We acknowledge before one another and before you, Lord, that we have fallen short this day, this week. Cleanse us, Lord because it is our deep desire to feel your presence and know your wisdom today. Come, Holy Spirit, breathe life through these words. Speak to each soul exactly where they are and exactly what they need to hear. We thank you. We thank you in advance. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for most of us, uh, King David is kind of a hero, and uh, he certainly is for me. Uh, That said, he's also kind of an incredible mixture of wonderful and faithful characteristics, and then again, if we're honest, terrible flaws that led to death and division in his own family and a kind of a curse across multiple generations. 
And even so, in, in the book of Acts, David is, is, is called a man after God's heart who will do all of God's will. And I can't think of a better epitaph than that, a man after God's own heart. What made him such a man? What characteristics do we see in his life? What are the characteristics that we should emulate, we should follow? Well, clearly he was a man that was passionate about God who walked in a relationship with him day and night. We know day and night also because when he looked in the stars, he saw the greatness of God in the universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. We know that he was so passionate that he wrote, some would say, 85 or more of the 150 psalms. But you know, to me, it really isn't about the quantity of the psalms, but the wondrous quality how David is just brings all of his passion, all of his heart into those beautiful psalms. He also brings all of his fears and all of his anger and all of his concern. He brings them openly before his heavenly father. And I am so very thankful for that. I've had people tell me that, you know, you're not supposed to question God. You're not supposed to be angry. But there they are in the Psalms, David pouring his heart out, all of the good, all of the difficulty. And yet, through all of the difficulty, one of the things that I love about David in the Psalms is that that beautiful word, selah, it's like my life is turned upside down. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel surrounded on every side. Everything seems to be falling to pieces. And then there's this word, selah, which no one really knows what it means, but there's certainly a moment where the psalmist takes a breath. Even as hard as this world is, I know that my God is faithful. And I know that he's going to bring me through this. And I love that about David. When David failed, which was often, he was quick to ask for forgiveness. He never made excuses. And when he was called upon by Nathan, you are the man. You are the one who was guilty. You are the adulterer. David threw himself on the mercy of his God. And once he had asked for forgiveness, this is another great attribute of David. You know what? He didn't like dwell in guilt for years to come. He's, he, he, he repented. He laid broken before his God, but he didn't stay there. Restore the joy of my salvation, he, pray, he prays in Psalm 51. Return to me the joy of my salvation. So that what? So that I can tell the world about the greatness of my God. All Wonderful characteristics that I think are, are worthy for us to follow. But in our sermon passage today, there's one more that maybe might not be as well known. In 1 Chronicles 17, 1, King David looks around and you know what? Everything's going pretty good for the king. It's good being the king. He looks around and he's living in a beautiful cedar house. That was the best. That was the, the, the HGTV of the day. That was the, just the place to, to live. And he looks over Israel and he says, you know, God has blessed Israel so incredibly. And yet the Ark of the Covenant, the, kind of the footstool of God as it was called, he said it's living under curtains. It's living under animal skins. He, David said, I don't think that's right that God has blessed us so much, and yet he has no temple. 
And that doesn't seem right to David. And so he proposes to Nathan, the prophet of God. He says, I want to build a great temple that's going to honor God. I want it to be magnificent. In 1 Chronicles 17, Nathan responds. He says to David, do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. It seems good to Nathan, too. That's between verses 1 and 2. There should have been about a verse 1.5. You know why? Because something's missing here. Nathan, even the prophet of God, can make mistakes apparently because God comes to him at night, that very night. The thing that seems to be missing in verse 1.5 is Nathan didn't go to God and ask him what his desire was. And so in verse 4, he comes back, go and tell David, my servant, thus says the Lord, you shall not build a house for me to dwell in. That will be for someone else to do. David, you won't be the man to build my temple. Now, let's just get serious with each other for a minute, okay? Let's just get real. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of David this very moment. How would you respond? Out of your heart's desire, you wanted to bring glory to God. You wanted to do something good for him. You wanted to respond for all of the blessing that, that, that God has poured out on you. You want to do something good for, day, for, for God, and he says to you, no. How would you respond? If we were honest with each other, I think there might be a few of us, me included, who might just pout a little bit about that. Right? You might just say, this was my idea. And now someone else is going to get to do it? You might just say, you know, I'm just trying to honor God. I just want to thank him for all of our blessings. I just want to give him what he deserves. I'm the king. I should be the one that's doing this. Later on, we find out the reason why David's not allowed to do it. Because he has shed much blood and waged great wars. You, have not, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Now again, if we're going to get real with each other, we could just say, you know, David's trying to defend the people. I was just trying to do what I was called to do. Kings are supposed to go to battle and defend their people. That's what he was doing. And now because of that, I can't build the temple. How would you respond if you were in David's sandals? And like I said, I think the temptation would be to pout just a little bit. Is that what David did? There isn't a hint of anything like that in David's response. 1 Chronicles 22.5 says, David said, my son... Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all the lands. Therefore, I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. Here's how David responds. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to spend the majority of the rest of my life to build a temple that I will never set foot in myself. I'm going to spend a lot of my own fortune and dedicate the nation's fortune to it, too. There was, I was uh, studying this week, and I came across an interesting article that said, by today's standard, this guy went back, obviously too much time on his hands. He went back and looked at all of the things that, were, that, that David collected and then put a, a 2022 price tag on it. Do you know how much money it was? $20 billion. 
And David set it aside and made all of those preparations to build a temple to honor God that he would never see or never step foot in. So what's the character, what's the attribute that we see in David that's worthy for us to follow today? I think, I think the first thing that comes to mind is David saw that it wasn't about him. It just wasn't about him. He responds with great humility. There's no jealousy. There's no position to be defended. He got, with great obedience, with the intention of bringing glory to God who deserves everything in him alone. It's not about any one man. David's desire was to build the temple, and, and, and he humbly deferred to God's plan to bring him glory. I read a, about a pastor not, not too long ago who came in early one Sunday morning before church, and he ran off a bunch of pages on the copying machine, and he taped up these pages all over the church before the worship service, and each page only had four words in large block letters. It's not about you. Now, I think that's wrong for a couple reasons. I think, first off, it doesn't seem very loving or very grace-filled. But secondly, in a way, it is about you. It's about you. And it's about you. And it's about you and you. And it's also about the next generation that will follow all of us in this place that's been dedicated to God. It is about you. This place that has been entirely dedicated to God is the place where, where we can come to meet our God and to worship him. It's a place where, you know, you've heard over the years people say, I know you have, well, I don't need to come to church. I can worship in the backyard. I can do it on the, while I'm fishing. I can do it in the, in the deer stand. Right, no, you can't. Because there's something majestic and one together. When they set their own little preference to it, when the people of God really gather together, when they set their own little preferences aside and they have one focus, and that's to honor God. You know it, amen? Amen? It is about you. It's about the young and the old. It's about the black and the white. It's about all of the people coming together. It's about the next generation. So it is in a way about you. And, I, and yet I understand that pastor's frustration resulting in those, those four words. Because there's some invisible line that's so easy to cross where this place becomes, it can come more about our comfort than his worship. More about personal preferences than reverencing a God who is worthy of everything. Many years later, David's son Solomon would dedicate the temple and he would conclude with these words. Reverend McDowell, I wouldn't be surprised if you read these words when this, when this, uh, when this sanctuary was dedicated. Many, many do. 1 Kings 8.59 And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication to the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel. 
as each day requires, so that, there's the purpose, that's what we should focus in on, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, that there is no one else. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to God, our God, to walk in his statues and to keep his commandments as at this day. David understood he was going to sacrifice, he was going to dedicate himself to build a temple that he would never enter, that he would never see, because it wasn't about him. It wasn't about any man. It was about a future generation that would meet in this place to bring glory to God. You know, I talked about the temple, 15 stories high, covered in gold so that the the whole region could see. It wasn't just a piece of architecture It was a symbol, this is where heaven and earth intersect. This is where the people of God meet their heavenly father. David, listen now, because we're about to get personal. David was concerned that Solomon was too young and inexperienced. And so he set aside, he prepared, he prepared, he prepared for that next generation. Are we preparing I told you last week we had a wonderful meeting yesterday morning 3100 homes while we were talking we kind of identified that it's probably closer to 33 it may be a whole lot more than that 3300 homes probably representing 10,000 people coming to Sanford North Carolina in the next one to three years 10,000 people all within eight Point three miles of the church. I know what you're thinking. It's what I thought too. Oh, the traffic. But once you get over that, you just go, my soul, talk about strategically prepared. 8.3 miles in the middle of 10,000 new families. Will we go to them or just expect that they'll kind of trickle in and find their way to us? Will we prepare for them? I was thinking about the the demographics. I'm not an expert in this, but I don't think that the new people coming in are going to be in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think they're going to be in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. I think they're going to have young children. And so what I'm just wondering is, will will we prepare like King David did for that next generation? Will we set aside some of our own kind of personal preferences so that when they come in, we'll be ready for them? Why? Why? Because we love Jesus and we love our neighbor and they're going to be our neighbor and we just want to integrate them. Will we be ready? Are we going to be thinking out in advance and preparing for them? Do do we have the right Sunday school classes right now with the right Sunday school teachers? So when young people like James and Laura who, who came just joined the church last week, will we have something for them? Will we have classrooms that are prepared? So when people come, we can just say, let me put my arm around you and let me just show you where your classroom is. When we consider the music that will bless our current generation, isn't it, isn't it wonderful? I didn't think this through. I didn't set it up. But isn't it wonderful that we got a place for mandolin and violin right next to each other? Where we can sing hymns and we can sing contemporary music and there's room for everybody? 
Man, we shouldn't be cursing about that. We should be rejoicing that all the people of God with all these different backgrounds can come together and we can worship in this place. Amen? Praise God. I'm always going to remember those applause right there. That's a blessing to my heart. Let us remember that. Are we going to be concerned about that future congregation, that future generation? Or as some have said about some churches, that they would just rather, rather die than make relatively minor changes. When we have systems in place to, to greet people, we have every door covered about numbers of disciples that are going to grow in their faith. We have a place where we're going to keep our children safe. We'll have systems in place. You know, we're going to have them. We, we've got, we used some during a vacation Bible school. Nick did an absolutely wonderful job of figuring out how to do that. Now, we're going to spread that out through Awana and Sunday mornings, and shoot, it's going to be a little bit of note, a nuisance to you. It, it is. Somebody's going to say to one of those workers down there, you should know me. I've been here for 30 years. Listen, it's not about you. It's about that young couple and that mama who's going to think about, am I going to trust these people, these strangers, with my baby? Because if she doesn't, you get one opportunity. You get one chance with a visitor. Will we make the most of that chance? for the sake of his glory, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of helping other people grow in their discipleship. I want to, I want to tell you two church stories that have happened to me over the last 20 years. The, the first one, I got to my last church, wonderful church. Uh, I got there about two weeks, and they had called uh, uh, some people from the North Carolina Baptist uh, State Convention, and they had some experts, and they wanted... Uh, to bring this expert in on a Sunday night, and we're going to talk about the future of the church. We're going to talk about deacons ministry, and we're going to talk about worship wars. You know what worship wars are? That's where you know we fussing about what style of music is 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 best. And uh, so he got up and and he talked, and it was a good good talk. And then he asked if there's any questions, and and I had this question that was on my mind. I said I said you know I've just this is what's going on I'm thinking about. I said, in your experience, sir, and he had a lot of experience. You know, that's why he was at the Baptist State Convention. I said, in your experience, uh, do you think that the best, as far as the music and the styles and everything, do, do you think the best answer is, is to have uh, two services where one is, one is contemporary and, and one is, um, is just straight hymns, traditional hymns? And uh, so do you think we should have two different or one blended? And I, I hardly finished the question, and he looked at me dead in the eye. I mean, I had, hadn't finished the question, and he said two services. Just period. Done. That wasn't the answer I was looking for. I was looking for him to back me up a little bit. He did not. And so what I thought was he didn't understand my question, so I was going to rephrase it just a little bit. I said, sir, don't you, don't you, think, <laughs> don't you think it's better that uh, we, we just have multiple generations sitting in one congregation? 
Don't you think it's worth it for grandmas to be able to sit next to their grandchildren in, in worship service? Don't you think it's better uh, if we compromise just a little bit so that we can have unity in the church? Don't you think that when we have two different services that we really just have two different churches? Can't we honor the past and reach forward to the future? Now he was going to understand my question. He looked at me unmoved and he said, two services. Listen, because some people would rather the church die than the church change. I will never forget those words. May I just tell you too, listen, you know the great thing about worshiping God in the backyard or in the deer stand? You have complete unity. <laughs> right? Here's the thing. When we gather together, there's a little bit of friction, isn't there? Because Jeff, you come from at one place and Alice, you come from another, and Rose, you got a whole lifetime of different experiences, and, and Daphne, and you do too. We all have these different backgrounds. And so we, we feel this little friction between us, and, and, and we kind of groan over it. We kind of get upset about it. But don't you see, that's where God's working in each one of us, in that friction. That's where we figure out how to humble ourselves before each other so that we can have unity in the church. That's why we have mandolins and violins and drums and guitars all coming together. That's why a choir is beautiful. I truly believe it. Because why? There's all kinds of different voices, but they're going to come together to honor God. David, King David saw it wasn't about him. It was about being obedient. It was about bringing glory to God who deserves everything. This is our church. This is our church to, to learn about God and to love him and to obey him and, and to worship him and to bring him glory. This is our church. This is our church, but it isn't our church. You get it? You see what I'm saying? It's our church where we can come, gather our forces, where we can build each other up, where we can encourage each other to go, where we can learn about how to, to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. This is our church. It's just not our church. 3,100 homes. We'd be ready. It'd be a while, you know. We put a fresh paint of a fresh coat of paint in a Sunday school room and there's nobody there. You go, why in the world are we doing that? Because we're getting ready. Because we're thinking forward. Why are you wasting time? Because we're going to get ready. It may be a year before we see that uh, kind of uh, explosion. Let's get ready now because if we don't prepare now, you know what I saw over the Presbyterian church Saturday morning? They had an outreach right out there in their parking lot. How dare them? It's like I, the pastor came over here and he said the other day, hey, aren't you excited about uh, the 3,100 homes that are coming into the community? My first thought was, stay away from my homes. <laughs> That's maybe the most ungodly thing I've ever thought because we're all in the kingdom together, amen? Will we be ready? 3,100. One more church story and I'll be done. I, I was called to my first church 
uh, almost 20 years ago, right after they had gone through an ugly church split. Some of you have heard me talk about it. They only have 45 people left in the church, 45 people. And 40 of those people, uh, all of the 40 of them were above 65. Average age was probably around 72. They had one young couple. I'm not sure why they stayed. They had one young couple, and they had three children, and that was it. That was the 45 people. And so we gathered together, and especially with that one young family, and we put, we didn't have a lot of money. We, we had a, a nice church, nice building, but getting anything done when you get to that level is really, really hard. And so we got together, and I'm a big believer in Awana. Don't know if you know that. And, and, uh, and so I said, let's just, let's just focus on Awana. You only, we only got one thing we could do at that point. Only had enough workers, enough money, one thing, Awana. And then I started getting nervous. I started to think, oh, no. We put all our eggs in one basket. I've led all these people out onto the limb. I don't know what's going to happen. And so I, I, here's what I do. I kind of underestimate God sometimes. I just admit it. And so I told him, I said, I didn't want any people. Won't you please send us children? And if you do, I promise that we'll take care of them. And the spirit just, I just like, Rarely before in my life, the Spirit just descended on that group of people holding hands around that one circle. Won't you please send us the people? We'll take care of them. We'll love them. And then I started questioning myself, oh, no, we're way out there on a limb now. And I said, listen, if at the end of the year we got 15 kids, 15 kids, we'll just call that a huge success. First Wednesday night, 15 kids showed up. Because God can. Fifteen kids showed up. A year later, there was 60 kids. 60 kids in a church that only had 45. You know why? Because the, the kids were brought by their older brothers and sisters, and they were just kind of hanging out on the walls and were kind of watching, but they didn't go home. And so all of a sudden we thought, hmm, youth ministry. So we had, now we have a youth ministry. And then when they got excited about it, all of a sudden mom and dad started showing up. And they were hanging out on the walls. And then they kind of came back Sunday morning. And do you know what? Within three years, within three years, we went from 45 to 120 people. Not always, but on a good day, we had 120 people. And it felt wonderful. Right? It's wonderful. Until that third year hit. And all the new people, all the new people, and everybody knew who the new people were, they became eligible to be deacons and church treasurer and leaders of the church. You know what happened next, right? There was an emergency deacon meeting called that the pastor wasn't invited to. Next morning, the deacon chair came in. He was agitated. He said, Pastor, we're not going to have this. We're not, gonna, we're not going to allow these new people to fill key positions. I, I responded that they're eligible, you know. They're eligible according to the church manual that you guys wrote. The policy manual of the church says they're eligible. Didn't matter to him. And again, I'll never forget these words. He said, we aren't going to let them take over our church. And that was the beginning of the end. 
Because word got out before a vote was taken, before it was going to be discussed anymore, and some people just left in anger. And other people just started to kind of drift away because they didn't, they got enough ugly out there, they don't need it in the church, right? And if you went to that church today, you would find 35 people representing about four families, bemoaning the situation, just waiting for the right pastor to come along to turn things around. It doesn't work like that. But really, probably those 35 people are pretty content in our church. They call that the we four and no more. We aren't going to let them take over our church. How did such an attitude develop? They weren't evil people. I found them, for the most part, they were kind and generous. Maybe it starts with that idea, you know, like every church. Well, it really is our church. This is our church. This is our meeting place. This is where we're called by the Spirit to worship and serve. This is our church. This is the place where Paul says we're to work out our salvation. Our rally point to go out to encourage one another, build each other up. This is our rally point to go out into the world and share the gospel. And yet somehow that can turn into ownership. And not in my church. This is our place to worship him. But whose church is it? That's right. Psalm 103 says, no, that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And this is our father's house. And everything is about bringing him glory. Amen. You know what? Do we struggle with this? Every church struggles with this. Every church struggles with this. And like I said, it kind of makes sense because we come from all of these different backgrounds. But I just think it's a really good idea when we start to talk about preparing for the future, preparing for the future, that let's just get this out right now. Let's just, let's just get a clear vision of it. This is our church. Come on back up here. Those kids will find their way. This is important. This is our church. It's just not our church. And I truly believe, look at me now, I truly believe that this is something that together we can do. You know why? Because I've seen it in you. I've seen it, how you welcome visitors, how you greet them, love on them, and make sure that they feel at home. I've seen how you've been generous with people. And my only frustration is with people out there, I just wish they'd stay with us a little bit longer. I wish they'd just stay with us because we could help them get through a lot of the crisis. But you guys have been generous and kind. And, and what really came to my mind as I was writing this week was 
I was thinking about, you know, we just finished a vacation Bible school. I was thinking about a vacation Bible school we had about three years ago. And some of you were here. Some of you were working and volunteering. And, and, and if I was to care, this year, the kids, you know, they got a little wild every once in a while. But the kids this year were just glorious. I just thought they were great this year. The kids in 2019 I wouldn't use any of those words. To, they were just wild. I mean, they were just full out wild. And they didn't know kind of the church rules. And you know why? Because none of them had ever been in church before except a few of, of our kids. And Frida, you remember, don't you? you? You remember. I mean, they were wild. My first response was, there is something wrong with these children. But here's what you guys did. You took a deep breath. And the next night, they came back, and you were firm, but you were also loving. Right, Ann? I remember. And you were more concerned about people than paint. And throughout the week, we started to see a change in those children. And at the end of the week, we invested in their lives. You invested in their lives. You broke through the wild with your love. You set aside your personal preferences, and at the end of the week, they were invited to accept Jesus Christ. And that year, Jada and Cecilia and Natalie and Lizzie and Serenity and Kylie and Mandy all accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Their eternities were changed forever because God is faithful. And he used you, the faithful, who humbled yourself and believed that sharing the gospel into these precious lives, as wild as they were, was the most important thing that we could do. So let's keep doing that. We are his people, says the scripture, the sheep of his flock. And like David like David, don't you want to worship now? Set aside our personal preferences and just worship. And then leave a healthy and vibrant church for the future. You know, Sheila, your, your history team, man, you know better the history of this church than probably anybody, you and Reverend McDowell probably. You're passionate about that. It's good, it's right. Now let's just make sure that there's a vibrant church to carry on into the future. David saw it wasn't about him. It wasn't about any one man, but being obedient and bringing glory to God. And because that was David's heart's desire, do you know what God turned around to do? He just continued to bless him and bless him and bless him, even to the point where David, his lineage would include the Savior of the world. And you know what? I think if we have that attitude as well, God will bless us. Just like we stood around 20 years ago around that Awana circle and said, just cried out with our hearts, God, won't you send us these people? Won't you send us these children? And we promise we'll be faithful. God answers such prayers. Amen? Let's pray together.
Good and gracious Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift to come into your house, to open your word. And I know, Lord, that I am nothing but a small man. But I just pray, Lord, that through this time that you will work majestically in the hearts of your people, that your spirit can do all things. Breathe life into us. Give us a focus for your future. Lord, we desire today, tomorrow, for as long as until you return. Help this place to be a place that brings you honor and glory. We cannot do this on our own. We need your Holy Spirit. Where there are differences, fuse us together as one family of faith for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We never, sometimes I don't say it clearly, and uh, that's on me, but we never want to go without stopping and just saying, is, is there someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Just like, just like those young people accepted Christ, has, has there been a moment where you have invited him to be your Lord and your Master? Not just your Savior, but Master of your life. You don't, you don't need to know everything. The Scripture says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the grave, you too can be saved. And we'll walk with you and teach you everything that we know. Is there someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you don't, I beg you to come. Because I've sat where you sat. I felt the loneliness and the emptiness and didn't really care if I lived or died. Maybe that's what you experience, and he will in yours too. Jesus made all the difference in my life, and he will in yours too. So if you don't know him today, won't you come? Maybe there's something else that you just need a hand to hold, a, a place to kneel and humble yourself before God and cry out to him. Whatever it is the Spirit has called you to do today, won't you say yes? Scott's going to lead us in one final song. This is your opportunity to respond. Who will be the first to come?